We are in a series called When Heaven Meets Earth in the book of Ephesians. And we are three weeks in, so if you haven't caught up yet, you can jump online this week and hear the first kind of theological underpinnings of this series. We're at the midway point now where we're gonna start talking about the practical implications of living life where heaven and earth are intertwined in Christ Jesus. And so we've got something special for you guys today, whether you're online or here. Uh, We wanna show you the glimpse of a story in someone's life in our church where heaven and earth have truly converged and brought transformation to someone's soul, their life, their purpose, all of that. And so we're gonna show you Eric Nelson's story today. And maybe you know Eric, he's actually joined our staff in these last few weeks coming out of COVID and God has done an amazing work in his life. And so we're gonna show you a glimpse of his story, which is a pretty gnarly story, but it's an amazing story of the way that Jesus Christ can transform us as his heavenly power meets our earthly lives and brings us into his transforming presence. So this is Eric's story. I specifically remember I came home one day from playing in the fields with my friend and and we saw my mom and she was with her friend and they were smoking stuff and drinking stuff and getting high. So we saw that and as soon as they left, we went and copied what they did. You know, we picked up the stuff they were smoking and I know that was before I was six, so. My parents separated when I was three, so it was being raised by my mom. And my brother, who is three years older than me, we got to do whatever we want. And uh, we didn't have any discipline, except we had to be home at night. We lived with my mom's second husband, and for a babysitter, they got a neighbor. He sold drugs. I started selling at 10 years old. But when I was 12, my brother and his friends, and we were getting high, and I OD'd. I ended up having to get transported to a Children's Hospital at Stanford while I was there on the table, and I had an out-of-body experience where I left my body, and I was above looking down, and I had a choice to go towards the light or come back down. And I was going towards the light because it was like, it was like heaven, or it was just drawing me. I can remember the room. I mean, the line was flat and all the doctors and they were doing the defibrillator and none of that brought me back. What brought me back was when I heard my mom screaming, he's too young. I had a choice. I could keep going or I could go back. And when I heard her, I went back. I'm 27 years old and I live in a dope house. The plan was to to graduate college and then, you know, launder the money that we were making from the drugs. And I didn't plan on becoming so addicted that that became the life. My mom had been in the psych ward and they uh, let her out. I was like, yeah, you can live with me, mom. <laughs> we spent all the time together. I was working in the garden. The addictions and her lifestyle had caught up to her. I was at the grocery store. I told my girlfriend to go to her mom's house because I knew something bad was wrong. I tried to get in my mom's room. The room was locked. So I went around the outside of the house, climbed through the window, and my mom was there. And she had just shot herself in the head. And um, (laughs) it's still hard to talk about, but I'm getting better, it's getting better. 
there's envelopes for me and my brother. And she had planned it and set it all up. And I chose to get high, you know, that's all I knew how to do. So I went and got high, came back in, went got high, came back in. I spent 14 hours with my mom. Coroners came and got her and I'll ha that'll be with me till the day I die. I came back and lived in Madeira with my girlfriend and her two kids for a few years. And all we did was use. I was doing methamphetamines. And once you get on that stuff, it's like you're on that train and it's really hard to get off. For the next 14 years, I was just stuck in my, my disease. The sin gets, it, it rules you. I was ruled by sin. It's June 18, 2007, and I come home to my brother's house, which I had been living. He had gotten clean and sober, and one of the rules that he had since it was his house is that I couldn't bring drugs or alcohol into the house. So I didn't. I was out in my car in front of the house using the drugs and alcohol. I had been there that night. I couldn't get high and I couldn't get drunk. I drank a huge bottle. I was hitting my head on the steering wheel saying, what am I doing with my life? He came out and saw me and he's like, oh man, <laughs> I'm gonna take you to a meeting. And he took me to a meeting that day. This little old lady, she shuffled up to me and I was standing there smoking a cigarette and she poked me in the chest and she said, what are you doing with your life? I looked up, I put my hands out, I dropped my cigarette, and I started crying. It gave me a glimpse of hope. And when I, once I got that glimpse of hope, I just started going to meetings, doing the deal and doing the steps. God broke the addiction in our family with my brother and I. We started going to church. I got married, I had a kid. They were doing the Christmas Eve sermon and there was the star on the side of the stage. The light shined down on baby Jesus. And right then it hit me. I got flushed, I started sweating. I knew right then, I said, it's Jesus. Jesus has been calling me this, this whole time. It took 10 years for me to get from that spot of the sin engulfed life to, to where I am today, where my God before was drugs and alcohol, and he replaced it with himself. When I first got sober, I had this vision that I would be helping people all over and steering kids and people to go towards Christ. The person discipling me talked me into coming to Three Crosses. I jumped right in when I got here. God was using my mother to get me to come towards him. God has, has so blessed me. He's taken away, you know, my drug use, my cigarette use, my alcohol. And now I want to return that and help other people do it. The opportunity came up to run the 12-step program here. And I jumped on the opportunity and they had all the supplies and the materials, so I'm going with it. This is what my life's purpose is. I can't keep someone sober, I can't get someone sober, but I can be the instrument that God uses to help the person. There's no better feeling than to see somebody's life change. And I hope to do 
that for the rest of my life. One thing that I love about <clears throat> Eric's story is just the, the maturity of perspective that God has formed in him as he's walked through these really hard seasons. You know, that, that line at the end that on one hand, he's going into the world and making a difference, but, but he recognizes, hey, I, what do you say? I, I can't change somebody's life. I can't make somebody stop using, but I can be an instrument in the hands of God. You know, the reason that we wanted to show this video today as we kind of have the midpoint, the hinge of this series, is that the book of Ephesians is six chapters long, and in chapter four, where we land today, when we get to the middle of the book where Paul stops talking about Christianity in theory, and he starts talking about our faith as lived in real life. And what we get to see in the story of Eric is somebody who's got a mature, deep understanding of the truth of the gospel, but somebody more than that who's been formed by the gospel and is bearing fruit and living on mission for Christ, living as a vital part of our church community and living as a humble and mature believer in Jesus. And Eric would be the first to tell you he is not perfect. None of us are perfect up here. But he, like the rest of us who are part of this church family, are, are growing in our faith together as we surrender our lives to Christ. And so the next three weeks as we talk about what it means to live out this thing, uh, we wanted to give you this story to show what it looks like in one person's life when heaven meets earth in one individual's life and the impact it can have. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with us to Ephesians chapter 4. We are at the hinge of the book. Ephesians 4.1 is where Paul changes gears a little bit. And so I'm going to read the first six verses for us of Ephesians chapter 4, and then we're going to study Ephesians 4.1 through 16 today. Paul, writing from prison, says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Now, there's moments in our lives when we get called to a new level of health and maturity. Now, we have uh, six kids at home. You know that. Um, what you might not know is our second child just hit a milestone. He turned 13 last month, which is a big deal in the strange household. That is our last name, in case you didn't know that. It's a big deal in the strange household because we feel like 13 is kind of the hinge between childhood and adulthood. And so when our kids have turned 13, when Jackson turned 13, now when Carter turned 13, we said, hey, we want to take you out to an adult meal, and we want to have some adult conversation, talk about adult, you know, more mature things. And so we said, where do you want to go? He said, I want to go to a steakhouse. And we said, who taught you about steakhouses? Like, he's no longer a child. I was hoping McDonald's, Taco Bell, right? Steakhouse. I'm like, okay. So we took out a home equity line of credit, and we <laughs> went to a steakhouse with Carter. And so it's this little rite of passage that we do. We give him a Bible and a birthday gift, something special. And then I've got this little speech that I try to give the kids when they turn 13, and I try to tell them two things, right? I say, listen, you're 13. You're not an adult yet. But at the same time, you're not a child anymore. 
I was like, Carter, we spent the last 13 years or 12 years of your life uh, training you up in the way that you should go and teaching you the basics of how to live life in this household, the basics about your faith, getting you indoctrinated at church and at Christian school and these things, right? Catechizing you to step in life with Jesus. We spent time kind of giving you rules and boundaries. And Carter, now that you're 13, you're still going to have to do what we say, right? You're not an adult yet. But at the same time, let's let this be a moment where you stop merely becoming, being a child, and you start to figure out what it means to be an adult. We start to learn how to do things without our supervision. Where you start to, to make your own decisions for things. Where you start to take the values we've tried to instill in you and live them out in your own choices. And so, so not everything is going to change, but you'll see that slowly some things will start to change. And you'll make decisions, and you'll have to go after stuff, and we're not going to remind you as much anymore. We say, Carter, this is a moment for you to cease merely being a child and start becoming an adult. I was thinking about that this week as I was studying Ephesians chapter 4, because it kind of feels like the speech that Paul is giving in Ephesians 4.1 is very similar. He spent three chapters instilling the theology of the Christian life to these people, talking about how Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of all things, that in him and under him, all things in heaven and all things in earth are summed up and unified in chapter 1. That for us, the theology about us in Christ is that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, God had prepared in advance works that we would walk in. That's God's theology. That's the plan. Last week, we talked about the fact that the church is the manifold wisdom of God on planet earth, that as a diverse people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are formed into one community, something beautiful and glorious happens. This is the theology of us as individuals, of us as a people, and as us under Christ. But now chapter four happens, and Paul, who's writing from prison, writes to these men and women who are reading this letter in the free world, And he says, after giving you all this theology, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And don't just know this stuff, Paul says. It's time to start living it out. It's time to explore in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 what it means to be a mature believer in Jesus Christ, what it means on the ground, boots on the ground, to live out this thing called faith. I don't know where you're at or if you are a believer in Jesus or where you are in your faith journey or your church journey or wherever you are. But maybe it's time that God is trying to tap you on the shoulder or like an Eric story, tap you on the chest and say, it's time to grow up. It's time to stop taking this stuff in theory and start putting into action. It's time to stop merely sitting in church or watching online and learning and absorbing. And it's time to start living a a humble, a mature, a healthy Christian walk in the world outside these doors. It's time to start moving from childhood to adulthood. There's a chance for, for some of you, this is exactly what you know God is calling you to do in this season. For others of you, you just love a challenge, right? It's like, okay, what is it? I'm ready, right? I want to be a mature Christian. Great. 
Some of you are nervous, right? Because you're not sure what exactly we are going to be asking of you. All right, so we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about what it means to walk in maturity. But today in chapter four, as Paul starts talking a little bit about what it means to live a worthy life, a life worthy of this calling we've gotten from God, I think even if you've been in church for a long, long time, you might be surprised at what the Apostle Paul says to describe a mature Christian life. You know, if I were to ask you, what does a mature believer look like? You'd probably have something in your mind that you'd go to, a person, a characteristic, a value, who knows? But as we look at these next few verses in chapter four of Ephesians, we will see that Paul's definition of maturity is in a lot of ways very different than the normal definition of maturity here in the church, in America, in churches like ours. And so what I want to do today is just kind of walk through how he defines maturity so that you can ask yourself, am I living a mature, healthy Christian life? And then at the end, I want to say, now, if you want to, here's a recipe to do that. And we'll empower you to live a mature life that's worthy of this beautiful theology we've spent the last three weeks talking about. So Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are, and we're going to talk about what it means to be healthy. You know, I, my son Carter had a milestone. I had a milestone birthday this year. I turned 40 this year. And so to celebrate turning 40, I gained weight every day since that day. People told me my whole life that once you turn 40, it's all downhill. I remember my mom having an over-the-hill birthday party. I'm like, over what hill? And now I'm like, oh, over this hill, right? Because those of you who've been telling me this for years, you were right, I was wrong. There's something about getting to the middle of your life when your body doesn't start to work the way that it was intended to work. Right? You eat food, and it doesn't do the same things as food used to do. Right? You wake up, and you're sore. How does that work? I thought I just slept. Right? You wake up, I wake up exhausted. That doesn't make sense to me. Right? And so I've been trying to figure out, okay, I want to be healthy. What does healthy look like? Right? And so I had to kind of wrestle with for the first time, what is my picture of healthy? Right? I used to picture like these bodybuilders, strong people, like that's not me. That's not going to be healthy me. Right? Sometimes I've gone through seasons, okay, maybe skinny is healthy, so losing weight, that's healthy me, right? I know coming is a day where I'm going to look at my blood work and cholesterol and define health based on the readout on that paper, right? Right now I'm trying to figure out what, what is supposed to be healthy. I want to sleep at night. I want to have energy during the day. I want to feel positive and happy, right? I'll just be happy if I'm healthy a little, right? I remember I signed up to go to the gym a few years ago, and they said, what are your fitness goals? I said, I want to be able to stand up from the toilet when I'm 80. That's my fitness goal, right? I'm getting to that stage in life where we really have to define what is health, really. Now, the reason I bring this up is not to tell you about my weird fitness habits, right? But the reason I bring this up is because when Paul describes health in the body of Christ, he uses that very analogy of body. He says even here in verse 1, 2, and 3 that we read that we are the body of Christ. We are one body. He takes this image and fleshes it out through the chapter. There's other books in the New Testament where Paul re brings back in this body analogy for spiritual gifts and hands and feet. And he says, if you're a Christian, you're part of this body called Christianity. And so as we define health, Paul gives us this metaphor, this tool, this body to say what, what we're trying to create in being mature, healthy Christians is we need to be a body that's functioning well. So if you're taking notes today, this is where you can start. The first thing that we see as we look at Ephesians 4 about maturity and health is that Christian maturity, according to Paul, is defined by how you live in relation 
to others. And this is what I said was going to be probably new for a lot of us. You think I think of a lot of us view maturity in a lot of ways, but it doesn't really de- depend on other people. It's just me being healthy, me eating right, me exercising, me knowing my Bible, right? Me living for God. But when Paul starts to talk about living a life worthy of our calling, the first thing he starts saying is how our lives should relate to the lives of believers around us, right? You can turn your attention to verses 2 And three, this is the first words he says out of urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he starts to kind of massage and flesh out a mature, healthy Christian believer's life by describing the relationship that that believer has to the other believers around them. You know, so he defines our relationship with others, and if you're like, okay, that's great, I believe that too, let me just double down on what he's not saying, right? Paul is not saying this. Having a strong theology, Paul is saying, does not necessarily make you mature in your faith. A lot of us view that, okay, if I'm gonna be mature, I know the Bible really well, I believe all the right things, I go to Christian school, I go to seminary, right? I get a master's degree in the Bible, then I'll be mature. Paul is not saying that having a strong theology makes you mature in your faith. Have you ever met somebody who's really smart but not a really good Christian person, right? This happens. There are theologians who have a strong theology, even an orthodox theology, that are very immature believers, Right, chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians describes a really strong theology, and yet Paul doesn't stop there. He says, okay, now that you know it, now let's become mature. So maturity sometimes and normally is built on a foundation of a strong theology, but just being strong theologically does not make you mature. Right? The second thing he does not say is living a holy life does not necessarily make you mature in your faith. This is the surprising one to me. Living a holy life does not necessarily make you mature in your faith. This is chapter five, where he starts talking about what it means to be a Christian and live righteously. But a lot of times, especially as American Christian evangelical people, we have a strong theology, chapter one, two, three, then we hop over to chapter five and we start living righteously and we ignore all the chapter four, live a godly life in relation to other people concept, right? You can't be a mature believer and live like a terrible sinner, right? But at the same time, you can't jump from theology to righteousness. Those are called Pharisees, right? It all starts with your relationship to other people. So not merely strong doctrine, not merely orthodox, like righteous living. And this third one's not in Ephesians, but I feel like I have to say it just to make sure we're on the same page. Having strong political opinions does not make you mature in your faith. Can we agree on that? Please, can we agree on that, right? We, the reason I belabor this is not just because I want some applause and energy, right? The reason I say this is because, unfortunately, we are living in a season in our country where the people who have the loudest Christian voices are oftentimes using those voices to espouse political opinions on one side of the aisle or the other, And so it's easy for us to believe, okay, becoming a a strong Christian means adopting this COVID view or adopting this vaccination view or adopting this political view or this view on racial justice or this view on social justice or this view on critical race theory, all these different things that these Christian leaders are spouting out, all this political stuff in the world. And it could be easy to believe that being a strong Christian means figuring out what you mean and believe politically and being real strong in it. 
that's not true. That's not true. In fact, a lot of folks are arguing today that one of the biggest downfalls of the church in America is how we've become overly political and underly Christian. There was an article a couple weeks ago in The Atlantic that I recommend uh, for you to read. You can Google The Atlantic, or if you're on the Three Crosses app, I think there's a link in the bottom of the notes to this article, uh, where a man named Peter Weiner was talking about just this view of the evangelical church falling apart in a lot of ways because of politics kind of becoming this parasite that's destroying us. And this is what he says about the relationship between politics and the theology of the church and maturity we see in Ephesians, even though he wasn't talking about Ephesians. Uh, Peter says this, Weiner says this, when the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories, not of grace, but of grievances. Places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it's having a devastating impact on the Christian faith. This, this idea of maturity and faith not being connected with politics might be one of the greatest things that's destroying us as a church in this season because if Ephesians talks about the fact that God has this marvelous plan for us and it involves a diverse people coming together and finding unity, Splitting off based on our political ideologies is diametrically opposed to the vision of Christ for the gospel, right? And so having smart theology does not necessarily make you a mature Christian. Living a righteous life alone does not necessarily make you a mature Christian. Having strong political views does not necessarily make you a mature Christian. Living our Christian lives maturely has something to do with our relationship to other people. Now, so I want to read it again. This is verses 2 and 3. We could put, a, I guess we could do it slowly. Put verse, the verse 2 on the screen. He says this first, be completely humble and gentle. Humble and gentle. Right? Humility is this concept of not thinking too highly of yourself, of not bringing your own agenda to the table, of putting others first in your heart first, of, of thinking of, more, of people more important than yourself. This is something that starts with us and relates to others. Gentleness is something where we take this posture of humility and we treat people in the way that is kind and not harsh and not beating people over the head with things, but having a posture of love at all times. Study of patience and bearing with one another assumes that if you're a mature believer in a community of faith, there are going to be people around you that require patience, that require you to slow down and bear with them. And so for Paul, talking about maturity in the faith, he says you're going to be part of a community where there are people that test your patience, try your patience, make you impatient. And so for you to be a mature believer starts with you humbling yourself, treating people gently, slowing down and adopting a posture of patience, bearing with them in love. Right? Galatians 6, Paul says the same thing. He says, bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. Maturity is based on your relationship with other people. And he continues in verse 3 to say, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He doesn't say your job as a Christian is to create unity, right? Jesus created unity by unifying all people, all things in heaven and earth under himself. But as Christian people, if we are to live mature lives, our job is to look around the community that God has grafted us into and say, okay, my job as a mature believer is to help keep this unity together, help 
Keep this spirit's bond strong between us. Help the gospel stay central. Help us stay connected. Help us live lives on mission together, connecting other people in love. And Christian maturity is not based on all the things it's not based on. It's based in a lot of ways in our posture with other people. And so if you want to write down a, a definition based on just these couple verses of what a mature believer is, write this down. A healthy, mature Christian is someone who works hard or works humbly to keep our diverse community woven together. Now, this idea of diverse came from Ephesians chapter 3 last week. He gave us a picture, uh, Paul did, of, of the community of faith being a community that's comprised of men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation, every socioeconomic background, every language, every race, every former creed and religion, right? We've all come together under the cross. And so as Paul starts to describe living life on mission, the first thing he starts talking about is being people who humbly work to keep this community woven together. If you want a great example of what this looks like in real life, I'll give you someone's name. You can write this down. His first name was Jesus. If you're ever wondering what name I'm going to choose, it's always going to be Jesus. Is Jesus did an amazing job at, at not just creating this for us, but modeling this for us as well. Now, Jesus was, was the one who started this concept of weaving together diverse individuals. If you ever read through the list of the apostles, it's all these guys from these different walks of life and backgrounds, political ideologies, tax collectors, religious folks, right? He puts them all in one community and he weaves them together under his common theme. Jesus even boasts almost to the Lord at the end of his ministry tenure. He says, God, I, I didn't lose one of them, except for Judas, who was destined for destruction, right? I didn't lose one of them. I kept these sheep that you had entrusted to me together and unified. Jesus was the one who was known for being gentle and humble and lowly. There's another book, if you uh, scroll down in the notes today on the app, or you can write it down, by Dane Ortland called, oh, I don't even know if I wrote it down, Somebody knows that you can tell me. It's called Gentle and Lowly or Humble and Lowly, Dane Ortland. Talks about Jesus being one who really embodies this Ephesians 4-2 reality. He was a gentle human being. He was a humble human being. He was a lowly human being. He was someone who modeled, even though he was by very nature God himself, he modeled humility and gentleness and love and respect wherever he went. And Jesus was the one who made peace. He created this unity. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our burdens in an ultimate way. He gave his life for us to knit together this community called the church. He sent forth his spirit to create this unity. He is the source of this, the example of this. He is the picture of Christian maturity. You know, in, in so many ways, we've always kind of looked at Jesus as an evangelical church in America and said, well, what marks Jesus most of all was that he was a righteous person. He never sinned, right? And that's true. Jesus never sinned. He was a righteous person. But as you read the Gospels, it seems like Jesus was more famous for his gentle, beautiful, loving, hu humble character than everyone was like saying, that guy's never sinned. He's never sinned. Can you believe it? He's never sinned. He never sinned. But what marked Jesus as a model example of humility in many ways was his relationship to others, even in his mission to seek and save that which was lost. For Jesus himself, his maturity was seen in his relationship to the people he came to serve and save. One thing that I feel like needs to be said, if we're going to explore this concept together, that's implied, but I feel like it needs to be made explicit in our world today, 
is that this assumes that you cannot be a mature Christian without being a vital part of healthy Christian community. You know, there's a lie out there that you can be a great mature Christian person and have no connection with other believers. Right? You say, oh, no, my faith is just between me and God. Right? Or people used to say, I worship God on the golf course. Right? I'll tell you, that I worship God on the golf course too. Right? But I primarily worship God in the context of life-giving Christian community. If maturity is defined in our relationship to others, you can't be a mature solo Christian. It just, it's a contradiction of terms. I remember when I was the youth pastor here, there would be kids who we'd have a worship night and it was amazing. We'd invite kids to follow the Lord. We'd do these great things. And, and I'd always see these kids like outside in the courtyard by themselves. So I'd go outside and just be this one kid with a Bible, right, praying real hard. I'd be like, hey, what are you doing? So oh, I'm just having time alone with God. And what they wanted me to say was, wow, how mature of you, right? Maybe I'm a bad youth pastor. I never said that. I had said something that made them think I was a bad youth pastor. I would say, Omega on Wednesday night is not a time for you to be alone with God. That's not appropriate here, right? They're like, wait, what? I thought we were Christian, right? Like, when we gather together, it's time for us to be together with God. I would say, like, you can be alone with God 24-6, right? Or 22-6.8. I don't know how that works, right? But for these two hours on Wednesday night, you're not allowed to be alone with God. This is the one time in your life that you are coming to be together with God. And life in faith and faith maturity is defined with us together in Christian community. So you cannot be a solo Christian, right? If you're watching online, that's awesome. Keep watching, but you gotta find some people to live life with together because you cannot be a Christian that's mature based on this definition without being in a relationship with others. Now, Paul starts to flesh out as we walk through the rest of the chapter how a mature life in the church fleshes out in real life and he starts by talking about some of the gifts that God has given the local church body. Right? He talks in verse 11. He says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And Paul says one of the gifts, the spiritual gifts even, that God grants to the church is he gives them the gifts of, of spiritual leaders of pastors and teachers who can teach the Bible and equip you of how to live a godly life, of apostles who can blaze forth the gospel and bring it into new frontiers, of pastors who could shepherd folks and call them out on their sin and invite them into righteous living, keep people unified. These church leaders are given by God to people to form this very community he's describing. Right? So one of the reasons you can't be a solo Christian is if you're a solo Christian, you don't have someone who's looking over your soul. Right? You don't have someone who's in his you've been entrusted into their lives, right? We talk about as elders here at the church that someday we're gonna have to stand before God and give an account for your souls. And so if we don't know what's going on in your lives, if we don't know how to care for you well, if we don't know where you're struggling, if we're not calling you out on your sins, we're gonna have to talk to someone more important than any of us about that someday. So, right? so part of being a mature Christian person is being under the teaching and leadership and shepherding of men and women in the local church who are entrusted by God to care for your souls. Whereas some folks in our world today say, I'm not a solo Christian, right? It's not just me and God and a Bible. I've got teaching, right? I, I watch Three Crosses Church online. I listen to Charles Stanley. I listen to Andy. I listen to all the Stanleys, right? I listen to Rick Warren. I listen to whatever. I listen to all these different teachers and pastors. And let me tell you, that's awesome, right? We are in a world 
where you will never be starved of Christian content. It's everywhere. Right? But there are some pitfalls if you have no real-life relationship with Christian leaders and you're just listening to content all over the place. Right? There's a pitfall that you might listen to some crazy people and have no idea. I can't tell you how often I'm talking to somebody who's so excited about their faith, then I talk to them two months later, and they're a like, wacko Christian. I'm like, what happened? They're like, oh, I found this new teacher. And they say someone's name, and I'm like, no, 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 right? That's not Christian. That's this religion. Or that's not Christian. That's this cult. But that's not Christian. That's whatever. And they always say, oh, but I just love what they have to say. It's like, great. You can love what they have to say, but they're leading you astray, right? And and this happens to all of us. We all get caught up in this stuff. But if you're not in a relationship, in a local body, a local church like this one or some other church where there's spiritual leaders who you can bounce these things off of, it's very easy to have your faith shipwrecked by falling into heretical teaching. It happens all the time. The other risk is that without sitting under the real-life teaching of real-life people, you can start to become a terrible person and no one's ever going to call you out. Right? We do church membership. We're working on our membership class for, for next year right now. And, and whenever we do church membership, we always tell people there are no benefits to being a member here except for one. If you become a member of our church, you give us the right to call you out on your sin. That's it. Right? And so when we find out somebody's sleeping with someone who's not their wife or someone who's gone astray or whatever, the first question we ask is, are they a member here at the church? Because if you're a member here at the church, you've told us, if I start shipwrecking my life, come after me. And we say, let's do it, right? And we don't do it excitedly. It's very sad. But we do it. We do it because that's what you've asked us to do, right? And let me just tell you this. Andy Stanley is a way better preacher than me. But if you leave your family, he's not calling you out. He doesn't even know your name, right? And you might be thinking, well, you don't know my name, Danny. I don't know anybody here. That's a problem, Right? That's why we're trying more and more to build ministry that lets you engage with community, where you can have leadership over your life. Whether it's something like our men's ministry or women's ministry, where staff people have leadership over your life. Or you're in a small group community, a life group, where we've got a leader that we are equipping to be able to care for you or put up a flag to send a pastor down if they can't deal with what's going on. Because we want to make sure that if you're part of the body life of our church, that we can be entrusted with your souls. So we need some pathways for you to do that. So don't be the person who's a solo Christian. Don't be the person who just listens to a bunch of different content online. And don't be the person who bounces from church to church to church. I've talked to too many people. It doesn't matter what church they start at. Sometimes they end up here. Sometimes they start from here. But they, the conversation's always the same. They say, Danny, I've been going to my church for a long time. I think I've gotten everything I can get out of it there. I feel like the teaching's not deep enough anymore, right? I've learned all this stuff. I'm looking for something deeper, so I found this new church. It's like, great. So I go find a new church. They spend two years there until the teaching's not deep enough. Then they find some new church, and they bounce around from church to church, like Paul says in other places, just longing for their ears to be tickled with what their ears want to hear, right? They want to hear the specific theology. They want to hear this deep teaching, and they want to hear, 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 absorb, 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 suck, 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 right? I love good Christian teaching. I'm not opposed to good Christian teaching, but this like holier than thou way of bouncing from church to church, this does not live out the mature life that Paul is describing here. All right, three reasons for this one. Number one, it's selfish. 
if you're just bouncing from church to church, getting what you want out of it, that is not a life about others at all. That is a life where you just want what you want out of whatever church you're connecting with. So if you're coming here because your other church wasn't deep enough, talk to me and I'll help go back to your last church, right? It's a selfish way of looking at it sometimes, right? There's other reasons to leave a church. We can talk about that. Email me, whatever, right? Second, this view of maturity, it's ironically immature. <laughs> it's, if maturity is defined in your relationship with others, bouncing from church to church based on content shows that you don't understand what it means to live a mature Christian life, which is by nature defined by being in relationship with people, right? If you thought this church wasn't deep enough for you, right? Chances are you're still here because you're like, I don't really like Danny. He's so shallow, but I've got all these people God has called me to invest in. I can't leave them, right? It's, that's what a mature person would say, and then call me out. Make me a better teacher. I don't know, right? It's it's ironically immature. I say ironic because always, people always think they're mature when they leave because it's not deep enough, right? I won't say that story. All right, third one is it's incomplete. It's incomplete. Mature Christian life is not merely about you and Jesus sitting under the teaching of a pastor and learning a lot of stuff. There's more to Ephesians chapter 4 than just this. Right After talking about part of maturity is sitting under the teaching of godly leaders and the shepherding of godly leaders, he starts talking more about our own individual roles within the body of Christ. Right? He, he says even at the end of verse 11 and verse 12, he says that you sit under these teachings because the goal is to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The goal is not for you to learn a bunch of stuff. The goal of this teaching is to equip you to live a holy life so that you can build up the rest of the body with it. Right? That's the goal of this space. Then he lands on here. This is verse 16. He talks about Jesus, and he says, From him, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I told you the first week that Paul is famous for writing really long sentences in Ephesians. This is one of them. The core of this sentence is that the whole body grows and builds itself up as we all do our work. The goal of the body is not that the pastor builds up the church, right? The pastor and the teachers and the leaders and the shepherds build up the church to equip you to build each other up and weave together this godly community of people so that we are healthy because all of us are playing our part. If you're wondering when maturity is going to happen in your life, you can take a picture of this screen. Maturity will happen. Take a picture of this screen. Maturity will happen when we all do our part to keep our community healthy, strong, and growing. That's when maturity happens. Maturity will happen in your life when you do your part to keep our community healthy, strong, and growing. I've been so encouraged these last couple years because even though we've been in this terrible season for the body life of the church, man, our church has been gifted with so many amazing people who really live out a mature Christian faith. Right, small group leaders who've kept tabs on people throughout the pandemic. Uh, small group leaders who've done marriage counseling for folks. People who've invited folks to live in their home when they're going through a rough season. Uh, people who work hard to keep unity in their community even though politics are dividing them and theology is dividing them and racial issues are dividing them and COVID is dividing them and vaccination statuses are dividing them and masks are dividing them. We've got people in our church who are just out there weaving together the body of Christ, keeping people unified in this season. There has never been a season in my 21 years of ministry that has been so divisive and dividing as the last two years that we faced as a church. 
And so this has been a year where really the rubber has had to meet the road, where churches have been tested based on how many mature believers are part of them, not in terms of how many will come back after COVID, but how many men, women, and kids are going to take the charge seriously that maturity in your faith means helping all of us stay together and be built up in health and growth with one another. So there's a chance that you're like, oh, I don't know if I do that. I want to do that. If this is you, I want to give you four things that you can do to really begin this process in your life, right? So imagine that Apostle Paul took you to a steakhouse, right, and said, listen, you've been a child. You've been going after childish things. You need the milk. You've been drinking the milk of the faith. You need the meat. Here's your call to adulthood. Here's your call to adulthood from the Apostle Paul. Here are the four things you need if you want to start living a life of health and maturity. And the first thing that you need is a community of believers. You cannot be a lone ranger Christian. It does not, that's not a real thing. You need a community of believers. You need to be part of a local church. You need to be in a community within the local church. You have to have people who know your name and you know theirs. You've got to have people where you can practice mature living together. A mature Christian needs a community of believers. Now, the second thing you need is, is submission to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're trying to live this mature thing without Jesus, that's a non-starter, right? You need a relationship with the Lord. You need to submit your life to Jesus. But more than that, if you're going to embark on Christian maturity, maturity in community, you need to first submit your plans to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, right? Even this concept of pastors and teachers and apostles, right? We use terms in America like senior pastor, and I'm uncomfortable with that a lot of times because the Bible never calls anyone a senior pastor except for one guy. Tell me his name. Jesus, yes, 1 Peter 5, the chief shepherd will someday appear. He's the senior pastor of the church. And so if you're going to be in community, you need to be under the, the authority of the eldership of the church and the teaching of the church and all that. But first and foremost, you need to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. Submit together with him. You need a community. You need submission to Jesus. And third, you, you need to have leaders that teach believers how to live mature lives in Christ. That needs to intersect. Right? And I would encourage you, don't find a small group and like listen to some content online. That's not a church, right? A church involves elders and pastors and teachers. There's a structure in Ephesians that makes a church. So you need real humans who've been hands laid on them by the church, commissioned to care for your souls. You need to have the authority of leadership of a church over you in some way, right? You know, you're part of our church. This doesn't mean we're knocking on your door all the time, checking your content, like making sure you get your attendance records, right? This just means that it's not just you and Jesus and a bunch of people. It's you and Jesus and a bunch of people under the authority of the leadership of a local church. That's what you need. That's three of the four things. And the fourth thing you need, this is where Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, the rubber hits the road. You need to create a community where believers build each other up and hold the community together. If you're looking for, okay, what do I do? What's my part in that? You need to be one of the believers who builds the other believers up and holds the community together. That means when someone starts to stray from the Lord, you go after them. That means when someone's having a hard time, you care for them. That means when someone's mourning, you mourn with them. When someone needs money, you give it to them or you facilitate the community or our church, we have funds for that, to give it to them. You live in maturity because you are under the lordship of Jesus in the context of community, under the authority of the teachings and leadership of the church, and you're doing your part to be humble and gentle and with patience, bearing with one another, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's your recipe. It's not 
as exciting as Bible school. I don't know, for me, I guess. It's probably more exciting for you at the Bible school. It's not as exciting. It's like, I'm just going to be an amazing rock star, good person. It's not as exciting as your CNN or Fox News or whatever, right? But a healthy, mature Christian within healthy, mature Christian community can change the world, can show the world more than even in just their mission. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And community is the context where Jesus will show the world the love that Christians have for one another through you and through the rest of you.